Section 9 of Good Sense. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Good Sense by Paul Henri Thierry, Baron Dolbach. Translator Unknown. Section 9. Parts 92 through 99. 92. Man's life deposes against goodness of a pretended God. By calling mortals to life, what a cruel and dangerous part has not the deity forced them to act? Thrown into the world without their consent, provided with a temperament of which they are not masters, animated by passions and desires inherent in their nature, exposed to snares which they have not power to escape, hurried away by events which they could not foresee or prevent, unhappy mortals are compelled to run a career which may lead them to punishments horrible in duration and violence. Travelers inform us that in Asia a sultan reigned, full of fantastical ideas and very absolute in his whims. By a strange madness, this prince spent his time seated at a table, upon which were placed three dice and a dice-box. One end of the table was covered with pieces of silver, designed to excite the avarice of his courtiers and people. He, knowing the foible of his subjects, addressed them as follows. Slaves, I wish your happiness. My goodness proposes to enrich you and make you all happy. Do you see these treasures? Well, they are for you. Strive to gain them. Let each, in his turn, take the box and dice. Whoever has the fortune to throw sixes shall be master of the treasure. But I forewarn you that he who has not the happiness to throw the number required shall be precipitated forever into a dark dungeon, where my justice demands that he be burned with a slow fire. Upon this discourse of the monarch, the company look at each other affrighted. No one wishes to expose himself to so dangerous a chance. What? says the enraged sultan. Does no one offer to play? I tell you then you must. My glory requires that you should play. Play then. Obey without replying. It is well to observe that the dice of the despot are so prepared that out of a hundred thousand throws there is but one which can gain the number required. Thus the generous monarch has the pleasure of seeing his prison well filled and his riches seldom ravished from him. Mortals, this sultan is your god. His treasure is heaven, his dungeon is hell, and it is you who hold the dice. 93. We owe no gratitude to what is called providence. Divines repeatedly assure us that we owe providence infinite gratitude for the numberless blessings it bestows. They loudly extol the happiness of existence. But, alas, how many mortals are truly satisfied with their mode of existence? If life has sweets, with how much bitterness is it not mixed? Does not a single chagrin often suffice suddenly to poison the most peaceable and fortunate life? Are there many who, if it were in their power, would begin again, at the same price, the painful career in which, without their consent, destiny has placed them? 
They say that existence is a great blessing. But is not this existence continually troubled with fears and maladies, often cruel and little deserved? May not this existence, threatened on so many sides, be torn from us any moment? Where is the man who has not been deprived of a dear wife, beloved child, or consoling friend, whose loss every moment intrudes upon his thoughts? There are few who have not been forced to drink of the cup of misfortune. There are few who have not desired their end. Finally, it did not depend upon us to exist or not to exist. Should the bird then be very grateful to the fowler for taking him in his net and confining him in his cage for his diversion? 94. It is folly to suppose that man is the favorite of God. Notwithstanding the infirmities and misery which man is forced to undergo, he has nevertheless the folly to think himself the favorite of his God, the object of all his cares, the sole end of all his works. He imagines that the whole universe is made for him. He arrogantly calls himself the king of nature and values himself far above other animals. Mortal, upon what canst thou found thy haughty pretensions? It is, sayest thou, upon thy soul, upon thy reason, upon the sublime faculties which enable thee to exercise an absolute empire over the beings which surround thee. But, weak sovereigns of the world, art thou sure, one moment, of the continuance of thy reign? Do not the smallest atoms of matter which thou despisest suffice to tear thee from thy throne and deprive thee of life? Finally, does not the king of animals at last become the food of worms? Thou speakest of thy soul. But dost thou know what a soul is? Dost thou not see that this soul is only the assemblage of thy organs from which results life? Wouldst thou then refuse a soul to other animals who live, think, judge, and compare like thee? Who seek pleasure and avoid pain like thee? and who often have organs which serve them better than thine? Thou boastest of thy intellectual faculties, but do these faculties, of which thou art so proud, make thee happier than other animals? Dost thou often make use of that reason in which thou gloriest, and to which religion commands thee not to listen? Are those brutes which thou disdainest because they are less strong or less cunning than thou art, subject to mental pains, to a thousand frivolous passions, to a thousand imaginary wants, to which thou art a continual prey? Are they, like thee, tormented by the past, alarmed at the future? Confined solely to the present, does not what you call their instinct, and what I call their intelligence, suffice to preserve and defend them, and to supply them with all they want? Does not this instinct, of which thou speakest with contempt, often serve them better than thy wonderful faculties? Is not their peaceful ignorance more advantageous to them 
than those extravagant meditations and worthless researches which render thee unhappy and for which thy zeal urges thee even to massacre the beings of thy noble species finally have these beasts like so many mortals a troubled imagination which makes them fear not only death but likewise eternal torments augustus hearing that herod king of judea had put his sons to death exclaimed it is much better to be herod's hog than his son as much may be said of man this dear child of providence runs far greater risks than all other animals having suffered much in this world does he not imagine that he is in danger of suffering eternally in another? 95. A Comparison Between Man and Brutes Where is the precise line of distinction between man and the animals whom he calls brutes? In what does he differ essentially from beasts? It is, we are told, by his intelligence, by the faculties of his mind, and by his reason that man appears superior to all other animals who in all their actions move only by physical impulses in which reason has no share but finally brutes having fewer wants than man easily do without his intellectual faculties which would be perfectly useless in their mode of existence their instinct is sufficient while all the faculties of man scarcely suffice to render his existence supportable and to satisfy the wants which his imagination and his prejudices multiply to his torment brutes are not influenced by the same objects as man they have not the same wants desires nor fancies and they very soon arrive to maturity while the mind of man seldom attains to the full enjoyment and free exercise of its faculties and to such a use of them as is conducive to his happiness. 96. There are no animals so detestable as tyrants. We are assured that the human soul is a simple substance. It should then be the same in every individual, each having the same intellectual faculties, yet this is not the case men differ as much in the qualities of the mind as in the features of the face there are human beings as different from one another as man is from a horse or a dog what conformity or resemblance do we find between some men what an infinite distance is there between the genius of a Locke or a newton and that of a peasant hottentot or laplander man differs from other animals only in his organization which enables him to produce effects of which animals are not capable the variety observable in the organs of individuals of the human species suffices to explain the differences in what is called their intellectual faculties more or less delicacy in these organs warmth in the blood mobility in the fluids flexibility or stiffness in the fibers and nerves must necessarily produce the infinite diversity which we observe in the minds of men it is by exercise habit and education that the mind is unfolded and becomes superior to that of others 
man without culture and experience is as void of reason and industry as the brute a stupid man is one whose organs move with difficulty whose brain does not easily vibrate whose blood circulates slowly a man of genius is he whose organs are flexible whose sensations are quick whose brain vibrates with celerity a learned man is he whose organs and brain have been long exercised upon objects to which he is devoted without culture experience or reason is not man more contemptible and worthy of hatred than the vilest insects or most ferocious beasts is there in nature a more detestable being than a tiberius a nero or a caligula have those destroyers of the human race known by the name of conquerors more estimable souls than bears lions or panthers are there animals in the world more detestable than tyrants ninety seven a refutation of the excellence of man the superiority which man so gratuitously arrogates to himself over other animals soon vanishes in the light of reason when we reflect on human extravagances how many animals show more mildness reflection and reason than the animal who calls himself reasonable above all others are there among men so often enslaved and oppressed societies as well constituted as those of the ants bees or beavers do we ever see ferocious beasts of the same species mangle and destroy one another without profit do we ever see religious wars among them the cruelty of beasts towards other species arises from hunger the necessity of nourishment the cruelty of man towards man arises only from the vanity of his masters and the folly of his impertinent prejudices speculative men who endeavor to make us believe that all in the universe was made for man are much embarrassed when we ask how so many hurtful animals can contribute to the happiness of man what known advantage results to the friend of the gods from being bitten by a viper stung by a gnat devoured by vermin torn in pieces by a tiger etc would not all these animals reason as justly as our theologians should they pretend that man was made for them ninety eight an oriental tale an eastern tale at some distance from baghdad a hermit renowned for his sanctity passed his days in an agreeable solitude the neighboring inhabitants to obtain an interest in his prayers daily flocked to his hermitage to carry him provisions and presents the holy man without ceasing gave thanks to god for the blessings with which providence loaded him o oh allah said he how ineffable is thy love to thy servants what have i done to merit the favors that i receive from thy bounty o oh, monarch of the skies o oh, father of nature what praises could worthily celebrate thy munificence and thy paternal care o oh, allah how great is thy goodness to the children of men penetrated with gratitude 
the hermit made a vow to undertake, for the seventh time, a pilgrimage to Mecca. The war which then raged between the Persians and Turks could not induce him to defer his pious enterprise. Full of confidence in God, he sets out under the inviolable safeguard of a religious habit. He passes through the hostile troops without any obstacle. Far from being molested, he receives, at every step, marks of veneration from the soldiers of the two parties. At length, borne down with fatigue, he is obliged to seek refuge against the rays of a scorching sun. He rests under the cool shade of a group of palm trees. In this solitary place, the man of God finds not only an enchanting retreat, but a delicious repast. He has only to put forth his hand to gather dates and other pleasant fruits. A brook affords him the means of quenching his thirst. A green turf invites him to sleep. Upon waking, he performs the sacred ablution, and exclaims in a transport of joy, O oh Allah, how great is thy goodness to the children of men! After this perfect refreshment, the saint, full of strength and gaiety, pursues his way. It leads him across a smiling country, which presents to his eyes flowery hillocks, enameled meadows, and trees loaded with fruit. Affected by this sight, he ceases not to adore the rich and liberal hand of providence, which appears everywhere providing for the happiness of the human race. Going a little farther, the mountains are pretty difficult to pass, but having once arrived at the summit, a hideous spectacle suddenly appears to his view. His soul is filled with horror. He discovers a vast plain laid waste with fire and sword. He beholds it covered with hundreds of carcasses, the deplorable remains of a bloody battle lately fought upon this field. Eagles, vultures, ravens, and wolves were greedily devouring the dead bodies with which the ground was covered. This sight plunges our pilgrim into a gloomy meditation. Heaven, by special favor, had enabled him to understand the language of beasts. He heard a wolf, gorged with human flesh, cry out in the excess of his joy, O oh Allah, how great is thy goodness to the children of wolves! Thy provident wisdom takes care to craze the mind of these detestable men who are so dangerous to our species. By an effect of thy providence, which watches over thy creatures, these destroyers cut one another's throats and furnish us with sumptuous meals. O oh Allah! How great is thy goodness to the children of wolves! 99. It is madness to see nothing but the goodness of God. A heated imagination sees in the universe only the blessings of heaven. A calmer mind finds in it both good and evil. I exist, say you, but is this existence always a good? Behold, you say, that sun which lights, this earth which for you is covered with crops and verdure, these flowers which bloom to regale your senses, these trees which bend under the weight of delicious fruits, these pure waters which run only to quench your thirst, 
those seas which embrace the universe to facilitate your commerce, these animals which a foreseeing nature provides for your use. Yes, I see all these things, and I enjoy them. But in many climates this beautiful sun is almost always hidden. In others its excessive heat torments, creates storms, produces frightful diseases, and parches the fields. The pastures are without verdure, the trees without fruit, the crops are scorched, the springs are dried up. I can only with difficulty subsist, and now complain of the cruelties of nature, which to you always appear so beneficent. If these seas bring me spices and useless commodities, do they not destroy numberless mortals who are foolish enough to seek them? The vanity of man persuades him that he is the sole center of the universe. He creates for himself a world and a god. He thinks himself of sufficient consequence to derange nature at his pleasure. But concerning other animals, he reasons like an atheist. Does he not imagine that the individuals different from his own are automatons unworthy of the blessings of universal providence, and that brutes cannot be objects of his justice or goodness? Mortals regard the happy or unhappy events, health or sickness, life or death, plenty or want, as rewards or punishments for the right use or abuse of the liberty with which they erroneously imagine themselves endowed. Do they reason in the same manner concerning the brutes? No. Although they see them under a just God enjoy and suffer, equally subject to health and sickness, live and die like themselves, it never occurs to them to ask by what crime these beasts could have incurred the displeasure of their Creator? Have not men, blinded by their religious prejudices, in order to free themselves from embarrassment, carried their folly so far as to pretend that beasts have no feeling? Will men never renounce their foolish pretensions? Will they never acknowledge that nature is not made for them? Will they never see that nature has placed equality among all beings she has produced? Will they never perceive that all organized beings are equally made to be born and die, enjoy and suffer? Finally, far from having any cause to be puffed up with their mental faculties, are they not forced to grant that these faculties often make them more unhappy than beasts, in which we find neither opinions, prejudices, vanities, nor follies, which every moment decide the welfare of man? End of section 9 Recording by Roger Moline